Good morning, good morning. What's going on? 1045 service. Man, you guys slept in. I expect a little bit more energy than that. Let's try it again. What's going on? 1045. There we go. There we go. Maybe the caffeine has wore off and it's time to fill up again. I don't know. Uh, man, it's so good to see you. Thank you for celebrating Easter 2021. And I'm going to tell you what, it's already off to a better start than Easter 2020. Easter 2020 was the first distanced and digital Easter in the history of man. And in the name of Jesus, I'm going to say we're never going to do that again. <laughs> but anyway, it's so good. So good to see you. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Journey, and it's, it's my joy to be the pastor here. I'd love to connect with you after the service. Come say hello. Um, but Easter is a really big deal. Uh, Easter typically is a Sunday where uh, there's more people than normal in church, and so that's why we're doing two services, and um, I'm, just, I'm just excited. It's good to be around people. The weather's warming up. We're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, and i got ribs smoking on the smoker right now. Uh, I shouldn't have said that. Some of y'all know where I live, and y'all going to be in my house. I don't have enough. Uh, there's three groups of people that show up on Easter Sunday. The first group of people, uh, I call them the true believers. These are the people who truly, from, from the depths of your soul, you believe that Jesus Christ lived, he died, and he rose again. He's changed your life. The reality of the resurrection has impacted uh, your life, and, and, and you've, been, you've been changed. Your life's been rearranged, and you're in a, in a different, and most would argue, a better place now than where you were before you knew about the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus and the hope of what that meant for you. All right, those are the true believers. The second group of people, uh, I call them the skeptics. Uh, you're here, and you, you don't really know what you believe about Jesus. Uh, you got some questions. Uh, the, the reality of it is, is you didn't get here because you, you woke up this morning and thought, I got, I don't, what am I going to do today? I'll go to church. Uh, that's probably not how it worked out for you. And in fact, I, I don't know exactly how you got here, but I'm going to bet that uh, if you fall in the skeptic crowd, that somebody that loves you and cares about you invited you to come and uh, you thought you would get into their good graces by showing up at church today. Or maybe, maybe you're dating somebody and you're trying to get in with them and they say, well, I'm going to church on Easter. And you said, well, I'll be there. What time shall I arrive and what shall I wear? Um, and then the third group of people is, uh, you know, I call, I, I call you the, the, the group that you and Jesus are good. You, you know, you, get, you got no issues with Jesus. Jesus got no issues with you. Uh, you, you would even probably say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, if I had to pick, I'd say that I'm a Christian. Uh, you know, and, and it's Easter. And, I, you know, church is not a regular rhythm for you. Jesus doesn't kind of dominate the news cycle of your life or the headlines of your life. But it's Easter. And, uh, you know, it's what we do on Easter. We go to church. Uh, maybe you're like a friend of mine leading into our Christmas service. He said, well, it's Christmas. I said, yes, it is. He said, I'm coming to church. Now you have to understand there are certain groups of people when you know them well, and you're the pastor of the church and they say, I'm coming to church. Really? Well, can't wait for you to show up. He goes, yeah, I just figure it's that time. I said, time for what? He goes, well, you know, that time for me to come to church and for you to clean me up from everything from the year, and then, you know, I'll be good to go. And I go, I'll do my best. Um, but regardless of what class, what group of people you are in today, man, I'm just really glad that you're here. You've come to worship with us and spend Easter with us. I believe it's going to be a great day. God's already moving um, and changing some lives of people. I, I consider myself in the true believer category. Uh, probably it's a requirement of the job uh, to be in the true believer category. Um, and for some people, y'all, you know, they think I'm crazy. And, you know, honestly, I, I get it. Uh, you know, if Jesus, if the whole Jesus thing isn't real, if it really didn't happen, then just consider what that means for me as a true believer. It means I have spent the majority of my life talking to and walking with an imaginary friend. And I've chosen for a career path telling as many people as possible about my imaginary friend. And so I get it. I know for some it sounds crazy, but man, I, I just believe for me, the reality that Jesus lived, he died, and that he rose again is one of the most proven things in the historical record, and it changed my life. God changed me, uh, and he, he set me on a new course, and I'm a, I'm a different person. I'm a better person now. I'm a better husband. I'm a better dad uh, than because of Jesus. And so um, that's, 
That's me. Today we're going to do something a little bit different. If you've been with us at, at Discover Church for a while, you know that one of what I like to do during this time is to open up the Bible and read a section of scripture or maybe a few different verses and try to help us bring some understanding and what, what is it God's saying and, and specifically what is God particularly saying to us uh, and, and what, what should we consider rearranging or changing in our life because of what God's word says. And so I really enjoy doing that. Today is going to be a little different. Uh, so if, if you've been with us, it's going to be different. If this is your first time, you come back next week, it's going to look just a little bit different. But today, uh, I'm going to read one word and share and focus our energy on one ancient Greek word that was spoken 2,000 years ago that is translated into three English words that when we understand the significance of this word and what it means, it'll change your life forever. And that's where we're going today. The title of the message today is, Is Religion Dead? We're starting a brand new series called I'm Losing My Religion. And so we just figured it'd be a best way to ask, well, if we're losing our religion, maybe we should start off by asking the question, is religion dead? So let me ask you this. What do you think of when you think of religion? It's the first thing that comes to your mind. Maybe you think of different world religions, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Catholicism, uh, maybe, maybe that's what you think of. Maybe, maybe what comes to your mind is stained glass and steeples and holy books and, and, and buildings and synagogues. Maybe, maybe what you think of is, is priests and prophets and monks and pastors. Or maybe when you think of religion, you think of, man, it's just a whole bunch of people running a whole bunch of different trails that are all going to the top of the same mountain and, that, and, and they all just point in the same direction. But regardless of whatever it is that you think of when it comes to religion, there are some common threads in every religious system in the world. The common thread usually uh, involves some sort of godlike figure uh, that's at the top of that mountain. Uh, that it involves some sort of holy book uh, that, involve, that, 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 that provides some instructions about how we're supposed to live. And, uh, and, and there's some holy people, uh, that, like I said, prophets or priests or monks or whatever that, that, uh, that God kind of uses to, to help point people to him and and then, and then ultimately, there's a, there's a list of expectations, and expectations that, that that God expects us to be able to, to meet the standard, to meet the requirement, in order for us to be able to avoid some version of hell in the hopes of being able to get to some version of heaven. The reality of it is, is that regardless of, of, of what religious system that you might be familiar with or aware of or believe or disbelieve, the, the common thread between every person amongst all those religious systems is that there is a desire to have some sort of connection with their God and, and hope that when it's all said and done with, that the scales tip in their favor and that they'll be able to, to go to heaven. As a matter of fact, that's an interesting conversation. You talk to almost anybody from any religious system and you ask them the question, hey man, do you deserve to go to heaven? Most people are really, really honest. I don't, I don't know if I deserve. I mean, I don't know if I deserve to go. I deserve a raise, but I don't know if I deserve to go to heaven. Um, but I hope that all the good outweighs the bad and, and when it's done, then we'll, we'll, just, we'll just see, I guess. And the truth is, um, is that uh, for a lot of people, um, the process of weighing out the good and the bad and the hope that maybe the good will outweigh the bad, it just becomes, becomes frustrating, it becomes too much. And, and that in comparison with all of the expectations and the rules and the requirements of the God of that system um, just becomes really frustrating. I was a youth pastor for 11 years. Uh, during that time, literally had hundreds of teenagers that I had the opportunity to, to pastor. And, and many of them, after they graduated high school, did what kind of the trend is. Uh, the majority of kids, if they graduated high school, if they've grown up in a Christian faith, a lot of them, at least for a season, they kind of walk away from their faith. And, uh, and, and, and I still had a relationship with them, even though they kind of walked away from faith, they lost their religion, uh, as, as it were. And so I would ask them, you know, like, well, what's up? What, what, what's caused you, um, you know, to lose your religion? And, and I've heard all kinds of things, but all of it falls into, um, generally speaking, one of two categories. The first category, uh, the first overarching category where most people uh, say they lose their religion is because God lets you down. That there was a time that you had a belief or an expectation that God would do something. And when God did not do what you thought he was going to do, what you expected him to do, then you were disappointed. 
The second category is that uh, it's not just that God let you down, but God's people turned you off. The very people who, who proclaim to follow that God represent him in such a way that's just, well, frankly, it's, it's kind of repulsive. So when we go to the first century AD, if we can go back in time, back to the time of Jesus, what we find is, is, a, is a nation of people. The Bible calls them Hebrews, Israelites, Jews, all referencing the same group of people. This was God's chosen people. And the, and the Jews, by the time of Jesus, had grown really kind of frustrated. They were, they, they were disappointed in their God because they knew that their scripture, their holy book said over 350 times that there was going to be a Messiah, a rescuer that was going to come to deliver them um, from captivity and to make it possible for them to be a great nation. Their, their, their holy text actually says that, that they would become such a prominent nation that through them, every other nation in the world would be blessed. Yet by the time that Jesus shows up, over 400 years have passed by since these people had heard from their God or heard from one of his prophets. So they were disappointed. They were frustrated. Not only that, they were turned off by God's people. There were a group of priests. These were God's holy people that were supposed to have the job of caring for the people and helping people connect with him. Um, there was a group of priests called Pharisees that, that had taken and manipulated and perverted the system of worship that God had established, that it was no longer about God and it wasn't really even about the people, but they had twisted it all to become all about them. So these people who were supposed to represent God and who were supposed to help the nation of Israel connect with God and to worship their God had become very off-putting and they were just turned off by it. So they were frustrated. They were discouraged, but they were still going through the motions of their religion. Now, if we can fast forward to 21st century AD to where we are today, we live in a time and space where it's very similar. That a lot of us, and perhaps maybe some of you, have been in a situation where you have been disappointed by God, where you prayed believing that God was going to heal your mom from that illness, or you prayed believing, God, would you help us to get pregnant? Would this be the month that we finally get pregnant? You prayed asking, God, would you, would you turn my wayward child around from, from that addiction, from the, from the road that they're heading down, and would you turn them back? God, would you reconcile our marriage? Would you restore it? Would you make things better? And for a lot of people, when God doesn't do what we expect him to do, oftentimes what we require him to do, because he says in his word that he's capable of doing some of those things, well, in those moments, frankly, it's just really disappointing. It's a bitter pill to swallow when God doesn't show up the way I wanted him to do in the time frame that I wanted him to show up. And beyond that, we live in a time where a lot of us have been turned off. If you've walked away from church, you've been turned off by God's people. Maybe it was a pastor. Maybe it was somebody like me that lived one way on stage and in the, in the, in the shining bright lights of the stage and the platform, but behind the scenes, they lived very differently. And eventually, you began to learn about the things that were going on in their private life, which caused you to question everything about their public life. Or perhaps you walked away from your religion because you grew up in a Christian home and your parents proclaimed to be godly. You went to church, you did all the things and you had big smiley faces on when you were at church on Sunday morning. But as soon as you got back in the car, everybody was mad and yelling and screaming and all you could see was hypocrisy. Or perhaps you have a friend that's a Christian that said something that you just couldn't believe that a Christian would say, or perhaps you've just been casually connected on social media and you've seen a bunch of people who proclaim to be Christians, but their language and the tone seems to be filled with so much anger and so much hate. And you have come to the point of saying, if their God is anything like them, I'm good. And these things, when they converge together, it, it causes people to really question their belief system. It causes people to question their religion. It causes people to wonder, what's even the point of all of this? And honestly, I get it. I mean, if, if your experience with religion has been defined by a God who continually disappoints you and his people who continually turn you off, then I don't know why anybody would follow that religion. 
And all of this ultimately reveals the problem with religion. I'm going to say some things today that are probably going to be harsh, going to be critical. It might even be a little shocking. It might be the kind of thing where you're going to go, I don't know that a pastor can say that on Easter. But I believe this with every fiber of my being, that religion is not of or from God. That really religion is self-will, self-empowerment, and self-determination that is wrapped up in spiritual-looking clothes. And though it looks like it has some divine components, there's absolutely nothing divine about it or anything that it espouses or anything that religion pursues. And you may look at religion and you may see on the surface something that looks good and moral, but if you look beneath the surface, all you will find is man-made pursuits. I'm going to double down and say that ultimately religion is humanistic moralism. It serves the aim of soothing our conscience because all of us deep down inside know something's wrong with me. We try to present and perceive and, 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 and put the mask and build the walls and present ourselves like everything is good. I'm a good person. But when the masks are away and the walls are down and it's just you in the bathroom staring at the mirror, you know what's deep down inside of you and you aren't glad or happy or proud of some of the things that are inside of there. And so religion then serves as this opportunity to be this humanistic moralism that allows us to try to make us feel better about what's going on on the inside, pursuing something that costs me something because it feels like it ought to hurt a little bit because what's inside of me hurts a little bit so that I can present myself to other people and to God as better than I actually am. Some of you are like, am I in church or... Don't think that's allowed, pastor. The reality is, is you've probably had some of these thoughts before. Because if religion was really that divine, if religion was really that holy, if religion was really that godly, then why is it so easy for this holy religion to be so easily manipulated by frail humans? Let me take it a step further. If religion is so holy, why is it that the interests of those religious pursuits always seem to align with the pocketbooks of the people who are leading it? If religion is so holy, then how is it that the few oftentimes seem to benefit at the expense of the many? See, there's a problem with religion. And I believe that bottom line, religion brainwashes us by revealing our human shortcomings. And then it convinces us the way that we can overcome those shortcomings is by doing enough certain things that, that cost us something that's going to require a sacrifice because, because something's got to counterbalance the bad, the, the, the ugly, the evil, the darkness that's inside of us. And so it brainwashes us to make us aware of our human frailties, then convinces us that if we do enough things, then we might be able to win the approval and the affection and love of the God that we say that we believe in. All the while, religion continues to move the goal line so that you never actually get to the point where you feel loved, accepted, and approved. Does that sound familiar? In a lot of ways, I think, of, I think of it like physical exercise. Anybody have a goal this year of losing some weight? Two honest people in the house of God. The rest of y'all are liars. The reality of it is, is at some point, we get to a point where we, you know, we want to be healthy. Maybe your goal is to be fit. Maybe your goal is to, uh, you know, to have the abs that are in a permanent state of hibernation. Peek out and say hello at some point. Maybe you want to have a certain physique. Maybe you want to look sexy in that dress. Whatever it is, the reality of it is, is that 
for the overwhelming majority of people, I realize it's not true for everybody, but for the overwhelming majority of people, knowing that we have a goal of a certain weight on the scale or, or certain physique type, it is 100% within our control. All we have to do is have enough determination, enough self-discipline, put the fork down, back away from the refrigerator, and get on a treadmill. And over time, with enough effort, with enough grit, with enough self-discipline, we'll finally reach the point of getting into those jeans that we bought two years ago that we haven't quite been able to get ourselves to give them away because every time you do, you go, nope, I'm not giving up on the dream. This is the year. I'm going to pour myself into those pants. I'm going to look so good. In the first century AD, the Jews were striving and hoping to please their God. God had given them a system of worship that was good. It started off as good. It was holy. And the system of worship that he had given was really for two purposes. The first purpose of the system of worship that God establishes in the Old Testament was to help the Jews to become aware that they're not God. The point of the Ten Commandments and all of the rest of the commandments is not so that you can have the rule book whereby you can live up to, and if you accomplish all the rules, then God can go, well done. No, the point of the Ten Commandments is to help people see that you ain't ever going to do it. No one's ever been able to get past the first commandment. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. So here's the deal. God establishes a system of worship to help the Jews know they're not God. It also reveals that because they're not God, it means that there's a space that exists between them and God, and that space is created because of sin, sinful nature, the things that we do that are offensive to God. And the system of worship allows them to be able to do some things to just kind of appease God so that God doesn't pour out all of his wrath on all of our wrongdoing for declaring an offense against him. Because every single time that we do something offensive to God, we're declaring war against him. So the first purpose was to make them aware of that. The second purpose ultimately was to leave a breadcrumb trail that would point to Jesus. That Jesus was going to come and he was going to be the fulfillment of, of over 300 plus prophecies, that he was going to satisfy all of the requirements of religion, all of the requirements of the sacrifice, all of the worship, all of the giving, all of the things, and that Jesus would be the one who would fully satisfy all of it. And what God wanted them to understand and what he wanted them to know is that, that ultimately you were never going to get to the point of satisfying me with all of your sacrifices of all of the animals and all of the things. Those are imperfect sacrifices to a perfect God. So by the time Jesus arrives, this is what the, this is what the Jews are, are, are into. They're frustrated. All, most of them are going through the motions because that's all that they have. And the Pharisees, the, the holy people that were supposed to be taking care of, of the Jews and pointing them to God and helping them connect with God, they had twisted and perverted everything and made it all about themselves. They would go and put on their best clothes, stand on the street corners declaring these big, fancy, elaborate prayers so that people would walk by them and go, oh my goodness, look at how holy they are. And then they would go behind closed doors and in the name of God and in the name of the rules and in the name of religion, they would come up with additional rules, they would add to what God's requirement was so that they never actually had to care about or care for any of the normal people. In fact, they created rules that created distance between them and the common person. People were discouraged, people were disenfranchised, people were frustrated. When Jesus shows up on the scene, he comes bringing a solution. He comes bringing a solution that's going to change the game, a solution that's going to make it so that people don't have to wonder or guess or be curious about whether or not God loves them, God accepts them, God approves of them. He's going to come and bring a solution that's going to make it possible where every person anywhere can have confidence knowing that God loves you. God likes you. God cares about you. And God wants to be close to you. And what's crazy about the solution that he brings 
is the timing that he brings it to. We know that Jesus was arrested on a Thursday evening. He was accused and convicted early Friday morning. And by mid-morning, he was hanging on a cross on Friday. But on the day that he's hanging on the cross, on this Friday, it's not just any Friday. This Friday is a day that is one of the most significant, holy, revered days on the Jewish worship calendar. It's the day of Passover. Now, if you're familiar with the Jewish tradition of Passover, then then you can kind of tune out for the next couple of minutes. But I want to walk you through and help you understand because it's going to help paint a picture of why what Jesus is doing is significant. Passover was rooted and was anchored in something that had happened generations prior to Jesus's time. When the nation of Israel were slaves to the Egyptians, they had been enslaved for 430 years and they had been mistreated. They had been treated hard. They were abused and they were calling out, God save us, God save us, God save us. And God identifies a man named Moses and he sends Moses to the most powerful man in the world. That's Pharaoh with a simple message. He says, Moses, I want you to go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And 10 different times Moses goes to Pharaoh and Pharaoh goes, no. Every time Pharaoh says no, God responds with a plague. The 10th and final plague was the plague where the eldest born son of all living things was going to die. So God gives Moses this instruction. Moses tells the message to Pharaoh. He leaves Pharaoh and he goes to talk to the Jews. There's a couple million Jews at this point, and he, he passes the message, he disseminates the message to the Jewish people. Here's what the God has told us. God has told us that he's going to send a death angel. And what he wants us to do is he wants to go find a pure, innocent, year-old, spotless lamb. And then he gave specific instructions about how they are to kill that lamb, how they're to, uh, to portion that lamb, how they're to cook the lamb. And then he says, I want you to take the blood from that lamb and I want you to paint it on the doorposts of your house. And here's what God's going to do. God's going to send a death angel as a part of this 10th this plague. And the death angel comes. And when the death angel comes to the door of a house where the blood of the lamb is painted on the doorpost, then the death angel is going to pass over that house. That's the name Passover. The death angel comes, Pharaoh's oldest son dies, the heir to the throne in a royal household, in a male-dominated society, the second most important person in the family was the oldest son. For Pharaoh, it's the last straw. Pharaoh calls Moses, says, Moses, listen, man, y'all got to get up out of here. Y'all ain't got to go home, but you got to get up out of here. And so they leave. The Jews get, get, get out of the group of the Egyptians. They get to the other side. They get to a place of safety in the wilderness and God begins to provide instruction. Here's the deal. This is so significant that I want you to make this a part of the annual ritual of tradition of how you worship me and what you do. And when you get settled, what you're gonna have to do is every single Jewish family across the Middle East is gonna have to come back to Jerusalem once a year to offer a Passover sacrifice as a remembrance of what God did. So on Thursday night, Jesus celebrates what what Jews call the Passover Seder. It's a meal where they they eat a lamb and and, and then, then they have four cups and they take the cups and each cup has a ritualistic blessing and a prayer of gratitude that they proclaim to God. And Jesus does it on Thursday night. It's actually a night early because Jesus had a previous engagement on Friday. And so on Thursday night, while the priests are in the temple making preparations for all of these people to come and offer their sacrifice, Jesus is with his friends at a table at establishing the last Passover. The Jews and everybody else that is getting ready to worship and Jesus' friends are participating in this Passover as an annual ritual, like it's this is just what we do. But nobody knew except for Jesus that this was the last Passover. On Friday, the priests are now in the temple and the, 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 the doors of the temple are open and Jerusalem is buzzing. There are more people in Jerusalem now than just about any other time of the year because everybody has made the pilgrimage back to the city. And it's hard to put into words the noise 
And the, 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 the volume, the decibel level of what the city would have been, all of these extra people, all of the families, all of the kids laughing, shouting, playing. The city is abuzz because this is what we do. People are seeing families. It's a family reunion for a lot of people. Inside the temple, there's the sound of literally hundreds of thousands of lambs being killed. And they're bleeding and they're making their noise. And, and after the lamb is killed, then the priest, what they would do is they would kill the lamb in a certain way and then they would drain its blood and they would catch a good portion of it in a gold bowl. And then they would take the, 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 the animal and they would take the bowl and they would pass it down the line to the next priest and next priest and next priest. And then that priest would ultimately, he would offer that sacrifice to God on behalf of the family that brought that sacrifice. And when the sacrifice, when the animal was placed on the altar, which is like a great big campfire thing, um, they, they would put the animal on the altar over the fire and they would take the blood and they would paint each of the four corners of the, of the altar with the blood of the lamb. And when that was done, then another priest would blow a shofar horn that would be loud that the entire city could hear. And over and over and over, hundreds of thousands of times on this one day, this would happen again and again and again. It's it's hard to explain how loud it would have been and it's impossible to explain how much of a bloody mess it would have been. But all of it done precisely as God instructed it, all of it done precisely as the children of Israel were supposed to, all of it done in hopes by the children of Israel that they could, that they could do the right things in order to be able to hopefully appease their God. And on Friday mid-morning, while all of the families are in the city making their way towards the temple, Jesus, after having been tried and convicted, having his beard pulled out, his face spat upon, a crown of thorns placed on his head, and being whipped on his back with a cat of nine tails, and then a beam placed across his shoulders is swimming against the stream, not going towards the temple, but going out of the city to a hill called Golgotha. And as the priests are in the temple offering the sacrifice and spilling the blood of those lambs and painting it on the altar of, of the temple, Jesus is hanging on the cross, spilling his blood for the sins of humanity. Every bit, every step, every component, exactly according to the religious system. Jesus came on Passover because what nobody knew except him was that he was the lamb of God, the only lamb that could appease God. And at about three o'clock in the afternoon, we read this in John Chapter 19. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. And now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting here and they filled a sponge with sour wine and they put it on hyssop and they put it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, to Telestai. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. To Telestai. A strange word in an ancient language that's not even spoken anymore. A word that really means nothing to us today. But in Jesus' day, it was a common phrase. A priest, once he had found the right lamb to offer the sacrifice, would say, Tetelestai, and the search for the lamb would be over. When a merchant was, was in a uh, transaction with a, a client and a customer and the transaction was finished and everything was final, that merchant would say, Tetelestai. When you paid your tax bill and you got your tax receipt at the end of the deal and, and written across the tax receipt with your name and how much you owed and that your, your bill was paid, it would say, Tetelestai. A soldier at the end of a battle, knowing that he had won and that his side had prevailed, he would shout, Tetelestai. 
And it was the telestai that Jesus proclaimed with his dying breath. And it changed everything. One Greek word translated for us into English to mean it is finished. Curious, really, if you think about it, why did Jesus say it is finished? Certainly seems to make more sense given the situation that he would say this is finished or I am finished. But instead he said it is finished. What was he talking about? He was connecting the dots for everybody of what was going on historically that while the priests were in the temple offering the Passover lamb as was tradition, as was religious ritual, symbolizing the first Passover lamb that freed the the, the nation of Israel from slavery, from the bonds of slavery from the Egyptians, Jesus was hanging as the last Passover lamb that would free people from the bond of sin. And when Jesus said it is finished, what he was saying is, is, All of this, the system, the requirement, the expectations, the work, it's over. There's nothing more for you to do. I am the Passover lamb and I am giving my life and I am declaring that all of that is finished. And in so doing, what Jesus did is he removed the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin, not just from himself, not just from any person, but for all of humanity, so that the very thing that created a chasm of separation between humanity and God could be closed through the sacrificial death of Jesus. You say, all right, um, what does any of that have to do with me? And why are you still on that treadmill? Well, the reality of it is, is as we sit in the 21st century, we don't understand to tell us die. We don't understand what Jesus intended and what Jesus meant when he said it. And what Jesus is doing is he is performing an act not just so that we could see him as a good person, but what he's doing is he is declaring the end to so many of the things that ail us and trouble us and cause us issues as humans. He says, shame, finished. Guilt, done. Sin, all the stuff that you did, all the stuff you could ever do that caused God to be upset with you, canceled. Death, no more. And the grave? Well, up until now, the grave has had the final word, but I'm saying the grave is finished. We don't understand this. Because of that, we continue to approach God through the perspective and the vantage point of religion. And when we do, what happens is, as we continue to operate, when we think of God, when we think about the idea of connecting with God, we think about it through the vision and through the lane, the lens and the context of religion and just says, well, I just got to do a little bit more. You know, I mean, uh, surely God will be happy with me if I just go a little bit faster. So I'll just, you know, I'll just turn it up. I mean, you know, I'm barely walking here. I can go a little bit faster. If God needs me to go a little bit faster, I can go a little bit faster. No big deal. I'm going to earn the candy. I'm going to eat later. So it's going to be all good. We say, God, don't you see what I'm doing? Hey! Oh, you need me to, hold on. I'll raise it up. Give me a second, but it's raising up. I'll make it a little bit harder, you know what I'm saying? Because I got this, God. You need me to go do that? I'll go do that. Oh, you're trusting in, in how often you go to church? That's what you're placing your hope in? Man, God, if I just need to go to church more, great. Oh, I need to get baptized? Great, I'll get baptized. You turn that up just a little bit more. Oh, I need to trust in the catechisms and I need to memorize the Bible. I need to study it. Fine, God, what do you need? God, I, I just, you know, and, but, but, but then here's what happens. Then life happens. God, don't you see everything that I've been doing? Don't you see how hard I'm working? 
So when a teenager faces a situation where they're flunking a class or they're flunking a grade and, and, and then now they're like, man, um, my parents are going to kill me. I'm not going to be able to go do this or do that or do whatever. And well, I mean, we've been in COVID, can't do any of that stuff anyway, but I'm still in trouble. Oh God, listen, God, if you will just show up, God, I went to church, I went to small group, I served, God, don't you see, I just, I need to run faster, okay. Marriage is struggling. God, I need you to show up. God, where, where are you? Don't you know what I've been doing? We've been going to church. We dedicated our baby. We've been going to small group. We've been doing all these. God, where are you? God, I need you. Where are you? Don't you see how I'm working? Then we get to the point where we go, okay, well, why isn't God acknowledging what I'm doing here? I'm gonna start looking around. Oh, that's why. They're doing it better than me. Hmm. Raise that up. All right, now pick it up. Now listen, this is like a survival situation. I ain't mad at you, but if a bear is coming, I don't have to be faster. I just have to be faster than you. And so if that same logic applies to God, and if God's pouring out his blessings, and if God's showing up in your life, then the problem is, is because you, you, know, you are a little bit steeper inclined, and you go a little bit faster than I am. So God, if that's all that it is, man, why don't you say so, God? I'll just, you know, I'll just pick it up. I'll just do a little bit more, because I got a little bit more left in me. I can do it. And then your dad gets sick. Your grandmother passes away. God, where are you? Why are you ignoring me, God? Don't you see what, hello? God, my business isn't going well. And I don't, I don't really know what more to do, God. Do I need to pick up the pace? Where are you? God, I, I, you, all I need to do is just do a little bit more. Okay, I'll, I'll turn the incline up. God, what, what is it that I need to do? And, 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 and so we ended up living in this situation where life is frantic and life is chaos. And we, we approach relationship with God from the perspective of, man, I am doing so much. I'm doing so good. I'm for sure doing better than those losers. So God, where are you? And when we approach God, whew, sometimes we just say, God, I just need a break for a minute, you know? I just need a couple weeks off Sunday. I need a couple weeks off not serving, you know? I just, it's getting kind of fast. And I'm exhausting. All right, it needs to go faster. All right, I'll go faster. And turn it up. Here we go. All right, God, I'm back on. Here we go. I'm back in. I'm with you, God. What do you need? What do you need? And here's what happens. When you and I don't understand the significance of this one word that Jesus spoke 2,000 years ago, we will always and forevermore approach God from this perspective and we'll go nowhere. And we'll get crazy, we'll get tired, we'll get frustrated, we'll throw our hands up and say, God, screw you then. I mean, I did all of that stuff, where the heck were you? And what we have to understand is that when Jesus said to Telestai, all of the straining, all of the work, all of the effort, all of the frustration, all of the things that lead us to believe that this is what God expects. This is what God requires of me. God, this is what you want. Jesus said, it is finished. And it's been finished. And I died 2,000 years ago so that you don't have to keep doing this. And what I want from you is not for you to continue to stay here, but I want you to realize that you can step off of that treadmill of religion and see that when you take steps following me in a relationship, you actually get somewhere. God never promises it's going to be easy or that everything's going to be sunshine, rainbows, and unicorns. He does say, this is not what I want for you. Don't miss this. This is what we celebrate on Easter. It's not just about a ritual. It's not just about a a day on a calendar. On Easter, we celebrate that on the cross, Jesus wrote the check to cover the requirement of religion. 
And on the resurrection, he said, I've got the funds in the account and the check cleared. So why do you keep trying to earn what God has already paid for? Why are you struggling for approval and acceptance from God? Why are you trying to impress God with, with what you can do and how far you can go? It's no wonder you walked away from your religion. It's no wonder it didn't make any sense to you because you were wrapped up and consumed that, that the message of religion and that the story of religion that God ultimately wanted was this. And this is the story of do, 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 do more, work harder. You're so close, you almost got it. Just a little bit more, just a little bit effort. Give me everything you got in the tank like a stinking Peloton instructor. A little bit more, you can do it. But the story that Jesus is writing is not the story of do. It's the story of done. And the resurrection is the exclamation point at the end of the chapter. Don't miss this. The resurrection proved that he wasn't just an everyday martyr. The history books are filled with martyrs who proclaimed to be something, do something, prophesy that something was gonna happen. But in all of history, there's only one name that actually pulled off what he said he was gonna do. Jesus had to resurrect from the grave so that we could see he wasn't just a man, but he was God in the flesh. And that the bank account of heaven more than satisfied the cost of our sin and the requirement of religion. What about you? Are you running on the treadmill of religion? Can I tell you it's exhausting? And it took me a long time, even several years after I was a pastor. I finally lost my religion when I realized I couldn't get there on my own. It didn't matter how fast I ran, at what incline, give me all of the weights, give me all of the stuff to carry. I can't do it. I lost my religion when I realized that Jesus did. Today, the question that I believe that God would ask you is, do you wanna keep running here? You can. And it'll, it'll even make you look like you're a good person. But it won't mean a thing. Jesus paid the ultimate price by laying down his life on the cross so that we could see that we have the access to step off of this and to step into a loving, growing relationship with the creator of the universe. With our last couple of minutes, I wanna do something. I wanna create a moment here, an opportunity to pause and reflect. As a society, we don't pause and reflect well. We're way too fast paced, we've got too many busy, important things to do, and too much of a microwave society. This is what I believe. I believe that every time the message of Jesus is proclaimed, it demands a response. Whether you know Jesus or you don't, it demands a response. So I wanna create a moment here where if you are a follower of Jesus that you might make your chair, the place that you are in right now, just a little sanctuary just between you and God and that you would take a moment and consider the price that Jesus paid so that the power of Tetelestai 
could be translated into your life. And if you're here today and you got questions, maybe you're doubt, maybe you're like, man, forget this whole Jesus thing and God thing, then I'll just ask you to take these next couple of moments and just consider what you've heard today. You'll never find a greater love than this. Brian's gonna sing. Why don't you just think about these lyrics, the price that Jesus paid for the exclusive express purpose so that you could know him. Not work to get to him, but that you could hop off the treadmill and receive a relationship with him. Maybe in this moment you want to close your eyes. Maybe you want to open your hands like this. Maybe you want to pray to God. Maybe you just want to process what you're hearing. Make these next couple of moments a private moment with you and the God of heaven. To tell us die. It is finished. When you understand that, in this next verse begin to make so much more sense. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. He said, come to me, all you who labor on the treadmill of religion, striving and straining and doing your best. You want to know that you can have a connection with me. You want to know that you can bypass hell and get to heaven. You want to be able to, to have a, a relationship and fellowship with me. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden. You're worn out from running on the treadmill of religion. And I will give you rest. I don't know where you are in your relationship or context or, or what you think about God. But I do know what that feels like. And I know the relief that comes when you finally get off. Today, Jesus would desire for you to be able to receive that same gift. price he paid so that you can know him. At Discover Church, we exist to see our city changed by Jesus, one life at a time. If you'd like to take your next step of faith today, text the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. Again, that's the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. If this is your first time listening, we'd love to connect. Reach out to us on social media and let us know that you found us through the Discover Church podcast. Thanks for listening.